friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. Now we go to a New Year's message. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 14 all the way to verse 17. So may I request you to please rise from your seats, please. On the count of three, let's all read together aloud, please. One, two, read. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you. 2018 is about to close, and we are ready to welcome 2019. And we take comfort in what the book of Hebrews says, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 2018 was a year wherein you sustained us, you strengthened us, inspired us, provided endurance and perseverance. Lord, we had seen your glory in 2018 amidst all the trials and difficulties we may have gone through. And so as we look into 2019, we have great hope and great expectations because the God of, the, of 2018 is the same God of 2019. You will never change, O oh God. You will forever remain our shepherd. And you will be always our eternal, present help in time of trouble. And so we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And I pray, Father, that the message for this coming new year might truly uh, resonate in our hearts, O oh God. I pray for myself that you might sustain me all throughout the message, I pray that you might give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, that I might deliver, Lord, in fullness every word that you want your people to hear. So I rely completely on your Holy Spirit. And whatever is going to be achieved this morning, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Powerful Love of Christ. Now, as we reflect on 2018, I'm sure that there were a lot of good things that you and I were able to accomplish this year. And we rejoice in that. We thank the Lord for that. And obviously, those good things that we had accomplished or gained in our spiritual lives, we would like that to continue in 2019. Having said that, I know also that 
2018 may have been a year of failure on some, you know, on some areas of our lives. There may have been some inadequacies that we had experienced, certain sins that we had committed in 2018. Now, we would like that to change. We would like that to be discontinued so that in 2019, we will actually start afresh in the Lord. Now, the big question, of course, is how do we change for the better? And I think the passage that we will be studying today is going to be very helpful for us to discover three very important truths. And I believe these truths will change us because these truths expound on the love, the powerful love of Christ. So let me just show to you the three points or the three truths that we will be talking about this morning. So we're going to talk about the powerful, uh, the power rather, of Christ's love encountered in verse 14. And so there are three things under that. Christ's love becomes our motivation. And then Christ's love poured out, that is at the cross. And then Christ's love extended, and that is to the world. And then we're going to talk about the purpose of Christ's love in verse 15. We are no longer to live for ourselves. That's the purpose for Christ's love. And we are also to live for God. And finally, we're going to talk about the effect of Christ's love in our lives, and that is found in verses 16 to 17. And we're going to talk about a new mind and a new life that we have acquired in Christ. So let's go straight away to the power of Christ's love encountered in verse 14. So allow me to just read this once again. It goes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, this passage is actually very loaded with so much truth about the love of Christ. And so allow me to begin by talking about Christ's love, which is our motivation. And we find this in the first phrase wherein it says, For the love of Christ controls us. Could you say this together with me? The love of Christ controls us. Let's say it a second time. For the last time. Now, if we study the Greek, the phrase Christ's love controls us may actually be rendered as this. The fact that Christ loves us causes us to act as we do. Again, let me just repeat. The fact that Christ loves us causes us to act as we do. And that being the case, I'm reminded of another passage in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And this is a very familiar passage. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. And basically, that tells us that we actually need to encounter the love of God to be able to change our lives. It is an absolute necessity on our part to encounter the love of God so that our lives could be radically changed. Now, allow me to just share a little personal testimony. I actually shared this a few times already. 
but some of you may have come here for the first time and you don't know this story. But allow me to share a story about how I encountered the love of God personally and intimately. I was, I think, about 22 years old at that time. I was a brand new born-again Christian. And so being a brand new Christian, I had valley experiences. I had mountaintop experiences. But there was this particular season in my life wherein I actually felt very, very dry. My encounter with the Lord initially was really like a honeymoon. It was in the honeymoon stage, and it was filled with a lot of intimacy, a lot of communion, a lot of supernatural experiences. But then again, as I mentioned to you, I began to have a season of dryness. And at that time, young as I was, I needed an assurance of the love of God. Now, of course, we find that assurance in the Word, but I was still spiritually immature. And so somehow I needed a little affirmation. So I prayed a prayer of faith. I'd probably say that prayer was quite presumptuous on my part because I was asking God something really huge and something really big. But then again, I was really surprised how gracious, how generous, how considerate our God is. And so my prayer went something like this. I was alone in my room, and I said to God, Lord, I'm really feeling spiritually dry at this time. Lord, could you please show me your love? Could you please make me feel your love? And immediately, the moment I prayed that, God answered it in ways that are unimaginable. And I'm going to describe to you in words what I experienced, but then again, I think I will not be able to do justice to what I had experienced at that time. This is my best way of describing what I had experienced. So when I prayed to the Lord, Lord, show me your love, immediately at that moment, I began to feel what I would call as waves of love. And I felt wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of love. It was like it was hitting my chest. And as it was hitting my chest, I felt that my chest was about to explode. I honestly felt at that moment when I felt the very powerful love of God, I really felt at that moment I was going to die. The power of God's love was so powerful that I really felt I was going to lose my life. So I prayed another prayer to the Lord. I said, Lord, I have already felt your love. Please stay your hand. And immediately, those waves of love stopped. But then again, because of that powerful encounter that I had with the Lord, it radically changed my life. It radically changed the way I viewed things. And from that time on, I made a commitment to the Lord that whatever He would require of me, I would do. I believe that is one of the compelling reasons that brought me to this place 
of full-time ministry. I believe it was one of the major factors that caused me to become a pastor. And that powerful encounter really changed a lot of things. And that is why here, as we examine this particular passage wherein it says the love of Christ controls us, what Paul was actually saying was that this has become his motivation in ministry. This has become his motivation for sanctification. This has become his motivation to become the kind of person that God wants him to be. Now, as I share that testimony, some of you would be saying, well, Pastor Mel, does that mean that I need to have the same encounter that you had with the Lord? Do I also need to experience those waves of love? Do I need to, to feel that intimacy? Well, again, I would like to be able to say that God deals with us differently. The way God manifests His love to each and every one of us comes in different packages. But you see, if there's one thing we can be assured of, the love of God has been poured out into the world. And the big question is, how did that happen? How did you and I experience that love? Well, that love was displayed at the cross. And so even if you and I do not have a powerful encounter such as I have described to you, all we need to do is reflect on what the Lord Jesus Christ had done at the cross. Christ's love was poured out at the cross. And where do we see this? Again, in the same verse that we read a while ago. And let me just read this once again. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Christ died for all. And that basically tells us that Christ did not just die for a select few. He did not just die for a remnant. He actually died for each and every person born into this world. And I think that is clearly spelled out in the book of Hebrews when it says that he tasted death for each and every one of us. We often quote John chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So our understanding of the love of God is that it is a corporate love. It is a congregational love. But then again, the Bible says, no, it is also an individual love. And again, let me just point out what I have always been saying, that if you were the only person in the entire universe, Christ would still die for you. That is how much He loves you. The love of Christ was displayed at the cross, and it is a death that is wholly dedicated for one purpose, and that is for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, why did that have to happen? It is because the justice of God demanded that death actually take place. And I'd like you to reflect on uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 at this time. It goes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, what is the Bible talking about here? 
What is the death that is being spoken of here? Well, actually, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, when God said to the man, you shall surely die if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the word die there, actually, if you do a literal translation, speaks about dying twice. It speaks about dying twice. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They experienced physical death. They lived long, not like our lifespan right now. They got to live long, but they still died. So it's speaking about physical death, but the greater death is that of spiritual death. Because in spiritual death, what happens is there is now a disconnection between us and God. We lose that relationship with the Lord. And it's something that we have also vicariously experienced as well in our lives. I recall back uh, in my college days, before I would go to class, I would go to the chapel. I'm not really the religious type. But then again, I don't know, uh, something was compelling me that every day before I went to class, I would go to the chapel, I would kneel down, I would pray my prayer to the Lord. And I think one of the prayers that I was praying for at that time was the fact that my parents were separated. And I think one of the things that was really weighing heavily in my heart is for my mother and father to be reconciled. And and thankfully, God answered that prayer. But having said that, even as I prayed every single day, there there was this distance that I felt with God. I felt that God was impersonal. I felt that God was so far away from me. And I think each and every human being feels that. We feel that that majestic distance between us and the Lord. And allow me to just say that it's not just really a feeling. It is actually the reality that speaks of our separation with God. We're all separated from God. And that's why for us to come to a relationship with the Lord, for us to be connected with God once again, something had to be done. The justice of God had to be paid for. And this is the reason why Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty of our sins to satisfy the justice and the holiness of God. And so we are thankful to the Lord uh, for that. That's why... Our sins brought physical as well as spiritual death, and God required the payment of a sacrificial lamb without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, without stain and sin. Now, who was that sacrificial lamb? Well, I already preempted myself. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just read to you Romans chapter 5, verse 10, wherein it says, For if while we were enemies... We were, notice the word used here, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And so this is one of the things that we're so thankful to God for, that He reconciled us to Himself. Previously, we were enemies because we were rebels against God. We disobeyed God. And yet, through His divine initiative, He reconciled us with Himself through the cross. That is why Romans chapter 5 says, We now have peace 
with God. In other words, we're now friends with God. In fact, we're not just friends with God. We have become His sons and His daughters as well. We now have that relationship. And that relationship is a permanent one. If we really have it, if we are genuinely saved, that relationship is permanent. Once a son, always a son. Once a daughter, always a daughter. Now that was brought about by the divine initiative of Christ. And we need to understand that salvation had nothing to do with us. We have no effort, no contribution whatsoever in our salvation. It is all by God. It is all by grace. It is all by faith. So the only thing we need to do is actually appropriate this, this salvation that God has accomplished through Christ. Now, we don't need to worry as to whether we can appropriate that because the Bible tells us that Christ's love was extended to all men. It says here, therefore, it says all died. Meaning to say, we were all identified into the death of Christ. We're all identified with the death of Christ. And that means that all of us potentially, all of the people in the world potentially could be saved. However, even as I use the word potentially, you and I know that there will still be people, in fact, many people who would still reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But the fact remains that he died for all men, therefore making a provision for the forgiveness of our sins. All we need to do is appropriate his sacrifice by making him our personal Lord and Savior. Now, let me just pause at this time and ask you this question. I am assuming that a lot of us have already made that decision. You have made Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. You understand that salvation is not your work. You understand that it is completely the work of Christ. And for some of us, we have actually embraced that. We have accepted by faith what Jesus has done on the cross, and therefore we now have a relationship. But is it possible that some of us here, most especially those who have come for the first time or the first few months uh, of December, could it be that you do not have a relationship with the Lord? Could it be that you're feeling this, this majestic distance between you and the Lord? Could it be that you're feeling this separation between you and God? And let me just tell you once again, it's not just the feeling. It is the reality of your spiritual life. And there is therefore a need for you to experience that love of God as displayed in the cross, you need to make a commitment, surrendering your life, making Him your personal Lord and Savior. Because if you're thinking about changing your life, if you're thinking about becoming a better you in 2019, it has to begin with encountering the love of God. And that's why I need to ask you that question. Have you encountered this love? Have you appropriated this love? Have you embraced this love in your life? Because if you have, then you're blessed because you can look forward to 2019 with great hope that you could be the best person you could possibly be. 
But then again, if you don't have that relationship, then this will all be wishful thinking. You, just, you will just wish that you could be a better person, but it will just remain a wish. And my prayer to the Lord is that will not remain a wish as you make Christ the Lord of your life. Now, I mentioned a while ago that the purpose of Christ's death at the cross is for the forgiveness of sins. That's the primary purpose. But then again, there is a secondary purpose, or should we say another purpose aligned with that. And here we find in verse 15 the purpose of Christ's love. And let me just read to you once again verse 15. It says, And he died for all so that, now understand when you see that phrase, so that, it's the purpose statement. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So the first part of this is telling us that one of the purposes why Christ died for us is so that we would no longer live for ourselves. All right? Again, the phrase uh, so that is the purpose statement. So here we see that it's not just for forgiveness alone. It is so that we might no longer live for ourselves. And I would like to say that many of us have not yet landed in that place wherein we're no longer living for ourselves. For many of us, it's still probably about us still. And again, let me pause at this time and, and let's reflect on this. Let's ask ourselves the question, how are we living our lives right now? Could we honestly and sincerely say we're no longer living it for ourselves? Could we honestly and sincerely say it's no longer about us? It is no longer about our dreams, our own ambitions, our own personal aspirations. Could we honestly say that we are no longer selfish, that we no longer have this selfish agenda? And I think that's very important for us to understand because, again, Christ did not just die just to forgive us of our sins. He did not just die so that our names could be written in the book of life. He died for us so that we might now begin to live for Him, that we might no longer live for ourselves. And that is why if we are going to be a true follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have got to learn how to die to ourselves. The old self needs to be crucified. We need to have an understanding. This life is no longer for me. It is no longer for I, me, myself. It is now lived for God. That's why the next statement says this, we are supposed to live for God. It says, let me just read the whole statement just to get the whole context. It says, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. The him here is the Lord Jesus Christ, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I recall the story of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody used to be a very successful businessman. Some of you may not know that. Of course, he is known as the greatest, probably the greatest evangelist that the United States of America has ever known. 
But previous to that, he was a very successful businessman and he, he decided to abandon his business and become a Sunday school worker as well as an evangelist. Because of what he did, some of the people he knew began to mock him and they called him Crazy Moody. They called him Crazy Moody because they were saying, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Why did you give up your business? You were very successful. And now you're going to be an evangelist? They have all laughed at him. But you and I know D.L. Moody had the last laugh because the Lord God used him mightily in the United States of America and even in England. And then again, this is a very powerful illustration of what needs to happen. We need to be at the center of God's will. And let me just tell you this, brothers and sisters, God has a purpose for your life. I don't know exactly what His purpose is, but most definitely, it's no longer for you to live your life as you want it. God wants you to live your life for Him. Now, whatever that purpose is could probably be determined by the gifts that He gives to you by the abilities that He gives to you, by the opportunities that He gives to you, by the circumstances that He arranges. The sovereignty of God will allow you to know exactly what He wants you to accomplish. But the question is, are you listening? Are you paying attention? Do you know the, the center of God's will for your life? Are you following Him? Are you obeying Him? Those are questions we need to ask because it is possible that some of us have turned away from the very will of God. I must admit that most especially during my early years, when I was encountering a lot of difficulties and hardships in ministry, I was actually tempted to go back to, the secular, to my secular life. I was actually tempted to work again and, and work on my career, which I had stopped, because I had entered into ministry. But every time I thought about that, I knew deep down inside I could not do it. It was only something that I was wishing, but deep down inside my heart, I knew I could not turn my back on the call of God. And this is one thing we need to understand. We were on the trading block, so to speak, as slaves. Now, slaves of whom? We were slaves of Satan. We were slaves of sin. We were slaves of, of the world. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were walking according to the prince of the power of the air and according to the ways of the world. That was our previous life. We were on the trading block. We were slaves previously. But Christ redeemed us. He ransomed us with His precious blood. And because of that, we do not own our lives. This is exactly the point of Paul when he mentions in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Could you please start in your Bibles there? Let me read this for you. It goes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Your life is not something that you own any longer. 
It says here in verse 20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The Bible says we have been bought with a price. And it's not the price of silver and gold. It is the price of the most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the price. We were ransomed. We were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the one who owns us is not Satan. It is not the world. It is not us. The one who owns us is God. The big question, however, is are we experiencing the ownership of God in our lives? Do we really feel that God owns us? Or maybe I should reverse the question. Does God really feel that He owns us? Again, let me ask that question. Does God really feel that He owns us? With the way we're living our lives. With the way we conduct ourselves. With the way we think. Does God really feel that He owns us? Because it's possible, my dear brothers and sisters, that we are not walking in the ways of God. And therefore, although God owns us, He does not feel that ownership. I was meditating on one of the Psalms and it talked about the stubbornness of the nation of Israel. And there was one phrase there that struck me. And it somehow spoke about Israel bringing pain into the heart of God. He pained, they pained the Holy One of Israel. Now we would think that because God is almighty and all-powerful and majestic, because God is a God of splendor, He doesn't feel the pain. Because he's, we think that he's, God is too strong to feel hurt. God is too strong to feel the pain. The truth of the matter is, if we are to look into the Scripture, God does feel that pain. I'm just reminded of what happened to us when we visited Israel just very recently. And one of the places we got to visit is the place where Jesus was tried uh, before, uh, before Annas, the high priest. And so we went into this place. Uh, this, this happened this in our second trip. We did not uh, have this in the first trip. But in the second trip, we went into this place where Anna's house was. And it's a very huge place. You know, it's, it's, the, place of, uh, it's the place of a high priest because of the many baths, okay, that they have there. Really elaborate and very wonderful baths. And, and you know that the people of Israel... Uh, they're very big when it comes to ceremonial washing. And so we knew this was, this was the house of a priest, and again, possibly the house of Annas. And if you recall the story, when the Lord Jesus Christ was being tried, Peter was in the courtyard. You remember that story? Peter was in the courtyard, and Jesus Christ was in the inner room. And we're probably wondering, how, how did Jesus look and how did Jesus and Peter's look get locked with each other? 
And as we saw how the layout of the room was, we saw how it happened. Peter was in the courtyard. Jesus was here being tried. And so he was facing the exit door. And so when Peter decided to move out because he was denying the Lord, because he, the maids were saying, the, the people were saying, aren't you with Jesus? And he was denying it. And so Peter made an exit. And at the moment when he made that exit, Jesus was here being tried. And then he looked at Peter. And Peter locked eyes with the Lord Jesus Christ at that time. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that Peter wept bitterly. You know, as I imagine that, how would I feel if I denied the Lord three times and then Jesus looks at me? Try to imagine that scenario. Try to imagine the pain in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Try to imagine that, that those eyes reflected the betrayal of Peter. I believe one of the major reasons why Peter wept, aside from the fact that he knew he failed the Lord, was he knew he had brought pain into the heart of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves, sometimes... That's what we have done. We brought pain into the heart of the Lord. No, friends, he's not too big. He's not too great that he doesn't feel the pain. He does feel the pain. In fact, the Bible says we have been made in the image of God. And what do we have? What is it in the image of God that we have? We have the intellect. We have emotions. And that's why... If we have been made in the image of God, God definitely is the most intelligent being. And we need to, to also understand that He also has feelings. In the same way that you and I have emotions, God has emotions as well. And He does feel the pain of our betrayal. He does feel the pain of our sins. He does feel the pain of our failures. He feels it. God is strong and mighty, but he feels the hurt and he feels the pain. Let's be reminded that when Jesus died and rose again, it was accomplished for our sake because it says here, he died and rose again on their behalf. In other words, Jesus did not do it for himself. He did not need it because he was holy, he was pure, he was blameless, he was without stain. Jesus did not need to die on the cross. I recall the sermon that Brother Beb shared during the Hosanna Christmas celebration. And he asked these questions. I thought those, those questions were very, very important for us to be able to answer. And he, and he went something like this. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. What if, what if Jesus chose not to be born? What if Jesus chose not to die for our sins? What if Jesus chose not to become God incarnate or God in the flesh? 
He could have done so. He could have chosen not to be born. He could have chosen not to die because in the first place, He is not at all obligated to us. We're the ones who are in sin. We're the ones who are obligated towards God. He did not have to be born. He did not have to die for our sins. So why did He do it? Well, again, this verse tells us. He died and rose again on their behalf, on our behalf, because He loved us. The love of Christ made Him do what He did 2,000 years ago. And that is why if anyone doubts the love of God, all you need to do is look back at what He did at the cross. Now, as we reflect on the love of Christ, it should have an effect on us. And the effect of Christ's love is found in verses 16 and 17. Could you please take a look at verses 16 and 17 at this time? It says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now... We know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, what does this mean when it says, therefore? This is now speaking about a person who has accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. Now, there are certain truths and certain realities that take place when you have accepted Christ. And what is that first reality? The first reality is a new mind. Say this with me, new mind. Say this to your neighbor, I have a new mind. Now, where is that indicated? Well, in the very first phrase, it says, Therefore... From now on, and speaking about our relationship with the Lord, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Now, in the first place, what does recognizing somebody according to the flesh mean? Well, you and I are aware that we have what are, what are called as icons, or we have those that we call as idols. And usually, they're the movie actors and actresses. They're probably the athletes. And, and we say, well, these are the people that, you know, we, we worship. These are the people we revere and admire. And actually, if you take a look at the concerts that are taking place all over the world, you know, people are almost worshiping the singers, right? Sometimes you see them with their phones and they're, they're doing like this. And if you don't know that it was a rock concert or a pop concert, you would think you're looking at a worship gathering. But no, it's not a worship gathering. People are not raising their hands to God. They're raising their hands and worshiping these people. Sometimes you see them doing this. Yeah. It's a sign that, you know, they're practically worshiping these people. That is recognizing people according to the flesh. And we were like that before. We had our own icons. We had our own idols. We had people whom you and I worship. But the Bible says, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. 
From the point wherein we surrendered our lives to the Lord, we no longer evaluate people on the basis of externals. In other words, we no longer put value on people depending on their looks, depending on their popularity, depending on their fame, material resources, power, success, and influence. Previously, before we came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, these were the people that we idolized. People who had accomplished great things in, in, in their respective fields. That is why I recall the time when Michael Jordan was actually called a god. And then we have all these movie actresses. They're called goddesses. That's recognizing people according to the flesh. But here's one thing that happens when we accept Christ. Our values now change. Our perspectives now change. What we particularly value right now is the heart. What we particularly value is the spirituality of a person. Now what does this speak of? This speaks of a changed mind or a new mind which is the beginning point of a changed life. We cannot change unless, first of all, we have a new mind. That is why the book of Romans says we need to renew our minds. This is where it all begins. And you cannot have a new mind unless, first of all, you have a relationship with Christ. Because the one that gives you a new mind is the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, you have godly thoughts being injected in your mind, whereas previously, you did not have those godly thoughts. Thoughts like, I need to read my Bible. Thoughts like, I need to pray. Thoughts like, I need to worship. Thoughts like, I need to do the right thing. These were things that were alien to us before. Previously, we responded according to our emotions. If somebody did something bad to us, we wanted to hit back. We wanted to retaliate. If somebody slapped us, we wanted to slap back again. We were ruled by our emotions. Of course, we knew in our minds what is the proper thing to do, but we could not help ourselves. We were ruled by our feelings, our emotions. That's how we responded and reacted. That's why our minds previously were filled with pride, with anger, with bitterness. These were the things that were filling our minds. But something changed. Christ came into our life, gave us a new mind. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden the things that we did not value before, we now value them. We value the Word of God. We value worship gathering. We value the friendship among believers in Christ, we do value those things. Now, Paul makes a confession. He says here, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Now, what is Paul talking about here? This was actually a confession of Paul. He was saying, the reason why I rejected Christ was because I saw him in the flesh, meaning he saw Jesus Christ based on his externals. And what were the externals of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, he was a provinciano. He was from the provinces. He was from the rural area. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth was 
an insignificant town compared to the other towns. It was a busy town, but yet it was insignificant compared to the other towns. Jesus was raised from that place. Jesus was not a city boy. He was not from Jerusalem. He was not educated by the rabbis of Jerusalem. Not only that, Jesus was an ordinary tradesman. He was a carpenter. He was just a builder. And then in so far as the looks of Jesus Christ were concerned, Isaiah tells us that he had no appearance that we should be attracted to him. So what does that tell you, Will? Jesus was an ordinary Joe. It's even possible Jesus was ugly. So again, the question is, would you, would you accept somebody who claims to be Messiah? And yet, he is only from, from Nazareth, he's from the provinces, he's a carpenter, he's just a builder, and then he's not handsome, he's, he's ugly. Would you accept him as Messiah? Would you say that he's the Savior? In our minds, we're probably expecting that if this, is, if this is the Savior, he would probably be six feet tall, he'd probably be very handsome, he'd, he'd have a regal and royal appearance. He would have this charisma with him. He would not be a, a provincial person, he would, he would come from the city, he would be from Jerusalem. Well, he, was, he wasn't from Jerusalem, he wasn't handsome. He wasn't popular. And that's why Paul rejected him. And the only reason why Paul accepted Christ was because he was walking down that Damascus Road and he was, he was walking down that Damascus Road to destroy Christianity. But then there was this blinding light that came upon him. And Paul asked, who is it? It is Jesus. The voice said, it is Jesus whom you are persecuting. And from that time on, there was a major turnaround in the life of Paul. It started with a new mind. It's interesting that, as I mentioned to you, the Jews see, see him today as a mere rabbi, not even a prophet. To others, he is just a man. That was how Paul saw Christ. He saw him only as a mere man. There were others who even thought of Jesus Christ as demonized. That is why to change, listen well, we have to see Jesus for who he really is. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Like right now, who is Jesus to you? Jesus had to ask that question with his disciples. If you recall in Matthew 16, 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? What do people say? And they answered, they say, Some say you're John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, all of these prophets were revered prophets. John the Baptist was a great prophet. Elijah was a great prophet. Jeremiah was a great prophet. But none of them come close to who Jesus is. And we might be revering and honoring Jesus at a certain level, but not seeing him for who he really is. It was at this particular juncture, however, that Peter gave a superstar answer 
when Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my big question is, do you see this? Are you able to see Christ as the Son of the living God? When we gather together, when we worship, when we sing songs unto the Lord in your life and in your heart, are you really saying you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Are you saying in your heart, Christ is enough for me? Amen? Because that's the only way you can change. If we see Jesus as lesser than what he really is, then we will not be able to change. But if we see Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of all men, the King of kings and Lord of lords, if we see Him as the Creator of all and the majestic second person of the Blessed Trinity, it is impossible that your life will not change. Because the way you see him is the way you will behave. If you see him as great and mighty and glorious, your life is just going to change. That's why Paul changed. Because now he no longer saw Jesus as a carpenter. He no longer saw Jesus as this ordinary Joe. He did not see Jesus anymore as this ugly person, this, this builder, this carpenter. He saw Jesus for who he really is. And that changed him. And that's why, friends, let me just tell you, you cannot change unless you have a changed mind in relation to Christ. Which brings us to the second part of this point. Not only do we receive a new mind, we receive a new life. It says, verse 17, could you read together with me? It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now let's break it down here. And see some of the highlights. It says, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. This is speaking about the person who has surrendered his life to Christ. He has made Jesus his Lord and Savior. He now has this personal connection, this relationship with God. He is now a son or a daughter of God. So what's going to happen? It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Coming to Christ means that we become a new creation. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, although primarily referring to Israel, is also applicable to us because Christ the King has broken his kingdom into this world with the first coming. And so this applies to us as well. So let me just read to you verses 26 to 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Look at the, the, the descriptions here. New heart. New spirit. Removing the heart of stone. Replacing it with a heart of flesh. God placing his Holy Spirit upon us so that we might walk in his statutes. If you and I have come to Christ, we are a new creation. 
The old things, the Bible says, has passed away. That means we no longer walk according to our old manner of life. Let me pause again and let me ask you, have you changed? Can you say, I am a new person? Can you say, this was my past, this was who I was long ago. I was filthy, I was dirty, I was foul, I was angry, I was lustful, I was materialistic, and now all of that has changed. Can we say we are a new creation? 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4 says this, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised. Who are surprised? Your old friends. That you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation that and they malign you. I know I'm born again because I changed. I used to have a very foul mouth. Practically almost every sentence that I communicated had a cuss word, had a curse together with it. My mouth was so dirty, it was so filthy. I lived a life of indulgence, moderation maybe, but indulgence. I tasted every bit and piece of what the world had to offer. I was smoking two to three packs of cigarettes a day. I was into drugs. I was into alcohol. I was into immorality. But those things are the past. When I became a born-again Christian, my former classmates were saying, what happened to Mel? Did he go to the boondocks? What happened to him? One of my classmates got assigned here in Cebu for some time, and I was already appearing on, on Christian TV already at that time. And, and she saw me on Christian TV while I was preaching, and she said, I almost fell off my chair. I mean, she was really surprised. The old male was no longer there. It was a new person. And my question to you is, can you say, just like what Peter is saying here, for the time already passed, past tense, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, and drunkenness, carousing. Can you say, I'm no longer, I used to be a drunkard, I no longer am. I used to be a drug addict, I no longer am. I used to be a very lustful person, I no longer am. I was into adultery before, now I'm a faithful husband or a faithful wife. Can I say that right now? It says here, behold, new things have come. This speaks of a new manner of life, a new lifestyle. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 and 13. Look at this testimony. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. This is now my life, Paul was saying. I am now strengthened by God and I am now faithfully 
serving the Lord sacrificially. I'm pouring out my life into the ministry. I'm pouring out my life for Jesus Christ. This is now my life. But then he talks about his past and he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Could you say, <coughs> I was formerly a homosexual and now I'm a man of God. Could you say that I was formerly a lesbian and now I am a woman of God. We have so many testimonies of those uh, kinds in our church. The one who handles our prayer mountain, the one overseeing our prayer mountain, and who is also now a pastor in the now, used to be a lesbian. She even got into prison in Hong Kong for some time. But you know what? God changed her life, turned it around, and now she's a woman of God, and she's saying she's available. Any takers? <laughs> That's what happens. When you come to Christ, you become a new creation. So let me just end by saying this. As we think about our New Year's resolutions, let us not forget that it all begins with apprehending and appropriating the love of Christ. It starts there. Once we encounter this love, it will cascade into a renewed mind and into a renewed life wherein we no longer live for ourselves, but we live it for God. Amen? Happy New Year. Can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? At this point in time, I would like to extend an invitation to people who have not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. As I mentioned to you, if you want to change, you cannot change unless, first of all, you embrace the love of Christ at the cross. Jesus died and paid the penalty of our sins. You don't need to pay for your sins. Jesus paid for it. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, all are covered by the blood of Christ. So all you need to do is believe in that, that the blood of Jesus Christ is efficacious to cleanse and wash you from all your sins. And secondly, you have to believe that salvation is not your work. It is completely the work of God because your works will never be able to reach the standards of God. So if you would like to do that today to begin this new life so that God could somehow empower you with the Holy Spirit. I'd like you to come to God and pray to Him, Lord, I want to be connected with you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to become my personal Lord and Savior. If that is your desire, 
While every head is bowed, every eye is closed, you can pray actually right now on your own. But if you need guidance, I can guide you. And just for me to find out if I should be guiding some people to accepting Christ, could you please slip up your right hand to the Lord? All over this place, those who want to accept Jesus, don't be embarrassed. Christ was not embarrassed to die on the cross for your sins. He was stripped naked. People were passing by that road and they saw him in his bloody mess. But you know what? He was not embarrassed for you. He was willing to do it so that he could pay for your sins. Would you want to accept Christ? If you want to do that, just slip up your right hand to the Lord. Yes, sister. Amen. Anyone else aside from our dear sister here? Yes, I see another hand. Amen. Anyone else? Yes, I see another hand. Amen. Amen. I see that hand, brother. Amen. I see that hand as well. Amen. Amen for those hands. You can put them down right now. I'd like you to please pray this from the bottom of your heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I ask for forgiveness for all my sins. Cleanse and wash me, Lord, from all unrighteousness. And Jesus, thank you. Through your blood, I'm forgiven. Through your blood, I am cleansed and washed. And so today, I make the decision to make you my personal Lord and Savior. I repent of all my sins and I cry out to you, help me, O God, to become the kind of person you want me to be by the power of your Holy Spirit. I know I cannot change on my own, but Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing and I know you're willing and able to change me. And so I surrender my life to you. And I thank you, Lord, for the free gift of eternal life. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please.